Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher, uh, Spotify, uh, or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. I've mentioned it before, but I'm going to mention it again to inspire myself to actually do it. Um, I'm hoping to put up some more essays on the website, so... Hopefully, stay tuned for that. Okay, so before I get started tonight on stories, I do want to say that my thoughts are with the people in California who are currently battling uh, terrible wildfires. I mean, you can see the plumes of smoke from space. It's it's bad. Um, Now, the fact that these are being exacerbated by global warming shouldn't even be an argument, uh, though it is. But what I really want to talk about uh, is the fact that our system is not equipped to deal with major disasters. I don't want to be alarmist, but I do want to uh, kind of remind people every once in a while we have to kind of talk about this because... Maybe someday we'll actually get somewhere where people are actually doing something about it. And uh, so we are just not equipped. We should have learned uh, many major hurricanes and other natural disasters ago, but we continue to not be prepared for these events. And one of the big ones for me, because it hits a personal uh, uh, point of worry for me, is that we are woefully unprepared for the next major pandemic. And that's from pretty much every single major um, body of people who know about these things from the CDC, from the WHO, um, the World Health Organization, everyone basically says we are woefully unprepared. And we're not the only ones who are woefully unprepared, but we should be worried about the fact that we're woefully unprepared. Um, And so we do, we all do a disservice to ourselves and to our neighbors by not addressing the structural issues across the country, which prevent us from being prepared for such disasters. Uh, For instance, as we're seeing in California, our electrical grid is dangerously outdated and in disrepair. Now, I don't want to turn this into a lecture about the failure of market-based solutions and the inherent moral failures of capitalism, maybe just for a moment. Um, But I do want to remind everyone that most governments, state and local are not equipped to deal with major disasters. And most people aren't. And I count myself among those, actually. Um, I was just talking to someone the other day, and it made me think about this, because she said that she's working on sort of laying uh, down some emergency preparedness stuff. And I thought about what I have for that and thought, oh, dear, um, I really should do that, because you never know. She was referencing uh, the uh, October snowstorm where many of us lost power for days on end. And so I think that it's important to not catastrophize, but to be aware and to think about the fact that one should have some measure of uh, security in the knowledge of having, you know, some ways to uh, cook food, to have water, 
to um, have some food laid away that you can eat either just by itself or with simple ways of cooking, things like that. Um, an emergency, um, you know, emergency candles, a um, a radio that is, um, they have those radios that are crank. You can crank them in order to um, charge them up, things like that. And so, you know, you don't have to buy them all at once. You can buy them over time. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just a good thing to think about. And one of the big things is, of course, that those of us at the bottom of the income chasm are increasingly unable to give more money to charities that are the ones who are usually out there having to bridge the gap that is lost with um, the unpreparedness of municipalities. And so that is really hard. Um, and I was reading about these statistics that, you know, someone was saying, oh, people always drag this out, but it's not true. Um, I found several right-leaning economists wringing their hands at these statistics. But I do want to just give you a quick little uh in, insight into what some of our uh, reports from our very government say. And so the report on the economic well-being of U.S. households, uh, this is the 2018 version, when asked if they had an emergency or rainy day fund that would cover expenses for three months, 48% of the 11,316 Americans in the cohort said they did not. 59% said that they could not support themselves for three months if they were to lose their main source of income, though for that the respondent number was lower at 5,339 because some of these are conditionals that if you answered yes, then you should answer this you know, next question. If you answered no, then you skip the question. Um, and of course, three months might seem like a long time, but sickness, job loss, and other emergencies can often last that long. And this is the one that people usually wring their hands, hands about, especially, which is when asked about the oft-mentioned $400 emergency expense of those people who suggested that it would be a hardship to them, which was 9,353 respondents, 14% said that it would cause them to be unable to pay all of their regular bills. And even without an extra expense, 17% of the entire cohort said that they would be unable to pay all of their bills that month when the survey was given. Now, the most likely bills to be skipped were those of a credit card, a cell phone, or cable bill. Um, credit cards are obviously the, the go-to for skipping first, which is, of course, a problem because they're the ones who are ultimately penalize you the most for skipping them, um, unless you're actually counting the fact that something might be shut off. Um, and of course, over the years, we have heard ridiculous uh, arguments from conservatives about how basically, well, if you're poor, maybe you shouldn't have a cell phone or cable. Um, but I would remind people that that is an incredibly tone deaf argument and that people who are poor are just as um, entitled to common decency and humanity as everybody else. Uh, so yeah, 
things out there are not as great as uh, some people would like you to believe. Uh, The next time you hear how good the economy is doing, uh, take it with a large grain of salt. And in fact, um, there was just something that happened today, I think, uh, someone um, who likes to tweet a lot without much fact uh, involved, um, someone who is in a position that is way beyond his reach, uh, was tweeting about how great the job numbers were for uh, last month. And um, if you actually do the real math, they are nothing like what he said they are. And so you definitely have to take these things with large grains of salt. Okay, so I thought I'd have to move on to more bad news now, but it turns out that it's not actually as bad as it seemed just a couple of days ago. So our friend, the Insight Lander, has been struggling mightily to deploy the mole uh, or the heat probe for one of its hoped-for experiments. Now, an update from Sunday noted that the mole had actually backed about halfway out of the hole that was created thus far. And that was a problem because if you couldn't get it back into the hole, it couldn't get anywhere else and it would have just been bad. And so at that point, they noted that preliminary assessments point to unusual soil conditions on the red planet. The international mission team is developing the next steps to get it buried again. Um, And that was from NASA officials. The next step in determining how safe it is to move The next step is determining how safe it is to move Insight's robotic arm away from the mole to better assess the situation, they added. The team continues to look at the data and will formulate a plan in the next few days. Well, they did formulate a plan and execute it. And so the latest update uh, from yesterday suggests that the robotic arm has succeeded in returning the mole to a stable position in the ground, which will allow them to actually move the arm away like they want to, to kind of better get a look at the hole itself and reassess the problem again. Now, there is something to note, uh, which was brought up earlier in the week, which is that uh, Thomas Zuberchin, uh, Associate Administrator for NASA's Science Mission Directorate, uh, did tweet back on Sunday, The InSight mission overall is functioning very well. Remember that, even though the international team will continue to do their best to get this mole into the ground, the mole working is not a so-called level one for mission success. So basically, if it never succeeds, it's unfortunate. It would have been great to get that data, but it's not going to then consider, it's not going to make the InSight lander uh, mission then incomplete in a way that is uh, makes it a failure. And so that is definitely something to keep in mind. Now, it would be great to see it ultimately succeed, but we do have to have sort of uh, modified uh, expectations because even though it sometimes seems to be going well, uh, it then, you know, will encounter another problem. So hopefully it uh, it ultimately prevails, uh, fingers metaphorically crossed, um, but we will just have to wait and see. Okay, so I know that I'm a day late, uh, but I think that it is fun to celebrate Halloween. Uh, happy belated Halloween to everyone. And so I do want to talk about some stories that are vaguely related to the idea of the Halloween season. 
And so tonight, I want to really start out with a new theory on the origins of the idea of evil. And so I hope that we can all agree uh, that the concept of concepts of good and evil are socially constructed and do not represent absolute values across all cultures. So if something something can be considered good in one culture and bad in another, uh, or good in one culture and specifically evil in another culture. Um, and so there are no real ways in which we can say that is always evil and that is always good. Now, there are some things where we might get close to that. Um, and so, you know, there there's arguments to be made for certain kinds of murder always being wrong, certain kinds of other things always being wrong. But again, um, philosophers would tell you that there's no way to really get to say this is that there's some sort of you know there's some sort of reason intrinsic to the universe that makes this evil or makes this good and so a new paper suggests that development of the concept of evil may have been an answer to the question of why people get diseases and die which is makes perfect sense to me and so the researchers found that in geographic regions with high incidences of disease, people were more likely to retain belief in demons, witches, and other personifications of evil. The authors note that people often posit the existence of supernatural forces or spirits to explain events that do not have a clear biological or psychological explanation, a tendency that is especially acute for harmful events. And so one good example of such an early belief is the Mesopotamian demon goddess Lamashtu, or she who erases. And so Lamashtu was considered the demon responsible for many diseases. Her work included poisoning waters with disease, killing plants, bringing nightmares, and causing tetanus in addition to persistent fevers. Um, that's according to one of the uh, sort of books on folklore associated with this region. And so the thing about her, though, is that she is primarily associated with death in childbirth and infant mortality. But she did strike down men as well. Um, just she's much more, uh, she seemed to be much more interested in, um, well, frankly, uh, a lot of the stories talk about how her real interest is in eating babies, um, which is a very uh, dark Halloween-y kind of thing that I don't want to dwell on too much. Um, so interestingly, her husband slash rival in some ways was Pazuzu, uh, famously uh, mentioned and somewhat maligned in the movie The Exorcist. Uh, this demon he was the demon of the southwest wind, which was known to bring dry seasons and thus famine, and locusts and thus famine. <laughs> and so, though technically evil himself, amulets to Pazuzu were worn in order to stave off other demons, including Lamashtu. And so, Pazuzu was often depicted driving Lamashtu back to the netherworld. Now, there are also many amulets depicting the evil goddess herself. Um, 
and those usually include depictions of gifts to appease her or ritual incantations to contain or repel her. And so we know today that the diseases attributed most um, closely to Lamashtu were probably explainable um, by things including preeclampsia and um, crib death, or what used to be called um, sudden infant death syndrome. And so, you know, these are things that in a pre-modern world are very hard to understand. Um, You know, crib death is still hard to understand, even in the modern world. Um, And so to have this kind of idea that there is an evil spirit that is out there, um, you know, responsible for these things makes perfect sense in a pre-modern mindset. And so supernatural explanations for diseases have been widespread throughout different cultures and time periods. An instance noted by the authors is a surge in witch hunts during the period when the Black Death was stalking across Europe. And due to the mechanism of infectious diseases, ideas of evil being the cause could be reinforced when those struck with disease were isolated, shunned, or killed, and thus not allowed to infect other members of the community. Thus, areas with greater instances of infectious diseases would be shown to have communities with shared practices, especially those that included the avoidance of strangers. And so the researchers suggested that if spiritual beliefs in evil were more common in areas with a wider variety of pathogens, it suggests that historically these beliefs may have evolved to explain the effects of pathogens, lead study author Brock Bastian, an associate professor with the School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne in Australia, wrote. It opens up new insights into the emergence of religion as a belief system that developed to explain natural threats or events. Now, to substantiate their hypothesis, the researchers conducted surveys and consulted archival data in order to build up a picture of what level of belief in evil existed in different regions. They surveyed more than 3,000 university students in 28 countries and asked them questions such as if they believed in things like the evil eye, witchcraft, the devil, and generic evil forces. In addition, they used archival data, which queried approximately 58,000 people across 50 countries about the subject's belief in the devil. This data was collected between 1995 and 1998, and the researchers also indexed individuals' social class, level of education, political orientation, and strength of their religious practices. They then plotted these beliefs in what the authors have turned in what the authors have termed moral vitalism against global data of infectious diseases. They found in areas where infectious diseases were historically common, people were more likely to believe in the devil, the malevolent power of the evil eye, and in witches who channel evil. According to the study, which was published online on the 30th in the journal Proceedings of the Royal Society B., we uncovered consistent evidence that historical pathogen prevalence is related to an increased tendency to believe that there are forces of evil at work in the world, the researchers reported. Correlations between belief in the devil and historic widespread disease were the strongest in Nigeria, Bangladesh, and the Philippines. 
Those correlations were the weakest in the Czech Republic, Germany, and Sweden, the scientists found. Now, there were outliers, with the U.S. having a high score on belief in moral vitalism, but a low instance of disease prevalence, though I think that immigration and the uh, population that we have today, which is not native to this land initially, uh, for the most part, makes up for a lot of that because a lot of these people come from places that do have more um, strong connections, between strong correlative connections between those two things. Um, and then there's Brazil, which has a high disease prevalence, but a relatively low score on moral vitalism. And I don't know about that one. <laughs> because I don't know that much about Brazil. Um, so it might just be that there's something about Brazil that people um, just don't, that they have ex other explanations for things. I, I can't give you more on that one. <laughs> and so correlating disease and evil, uh, which should be avoided, can have obvious evolutionary advantages. Limiting exposure to potential pathogens and those who have such pathogens um, would allow those beliefs to tend to pass on to generations to come. And so once those conditions, connections became embedded in cultures, it was and continues to be hard to diminish their influence. We know that even today, many people see illnesses as connected to evil. Such thinking remains evident in many modern societies, wherein health complaints are sometimes attributed to the will of God or the work of the devil, and spiritual remedies persist, the authors wrote. Just as religion has, retained, has remained attractive in view of scientific advances in evolutionary theory, we suggest a reliance on evil to explain illness has remained attractive owing to its capacity to moralize illness i.e. explain why people become ill, compared to biological models that primarily explain how, i.e. via transmission and infection. Furthermore, once a belief is embedded, it tends to diffuse across generation in, generations in a culture, a process referred to as cultural transmission, thus providing an additional explanation for the persistence of moral vitalistic beliefs. So yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And so, you know, it doesn't mean, therefore, that it's true, because we find that a lot of things that we think make sense uh, don't in the grand scheme of things. And we sometimes have to go back and figure out why it turns out that that thing we thought that made total sense doesn't. Um, but I think that this is one of those places where we can pretty much say it makes a lot of sense to connect the idea that when you have something like a disease and you have no idea why it's happening, you're in a, especially in a very pre-modern era. Um, I mean, even in a modern era, I mean, even today, this is still very prevalent and people still seek out, um, you know, spiritual and um, alternative uh, kinds of medicines to cure things that are either unspecific and thus not really able to be addressed by modern medicine or could be addressed by modern medicine, but the people have developed some sort of belief that modern medicine, for instance, is an evil. And so that's something that can be 
also uh, has kind of developed in modern times. There's a lot of, um, that's a really interesting um, twist on it that I just um, was thinking about. So part of what's happened in the modern day is that the medicine itself has become seen as an evil. And so despite the idea that someone might know that their disease is not caused by evil, they don't want the remedy that would help them necessarily because they don't believe that the remedy offered to them is actually a remedy. Um, And so there's a lot of ways in which this continues to persist and which in the ways in which good and evil continue to be wrapped up in the idea of disease and death. Um, And so, yeah, it's really fascinating. Okay, so let us take a break. It is about that time and we will come back and uh, we are going to uh, continue to talk about sort of Halloween-y things. And so uh, we're going to talk about another persistent belief, which is the uh, belief in ghosts. So do stay tuned for that. You are listening to WXOJLP 103.3 FM in Northampton, Massachusetts. And this is Evidence-Based Radio. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Has anyone ever asked you, don't you have enough records? Adventure Rocket Ship is new and old. Indie pop, psych pop, post-punk, shoegaze, lots of chiming, jangly guitars and catchy melodies from both artists you know and obscure 7-inch singles from around the world. Adventure Rocket Ship, Tuesday nights, 9 to 11 p.m. on Valley Free Radio. so glad we left that stupid party. No joke. Hey, baby, are you an overdue library book? Because you got fine written all over you. Oh, barf. <laughs> what about that girl with the hoop earrings? Ridiculous. When she was dancing... Megan, I'm... look out! Look out! <gasps> uh, oh. oh, my God. Becky. Becky, are you okay? My arm. I think it's broken. Can you bend it? It's already bent in the wrong direction. I can't believe this. I'm so sorry. I only had a few drinks. I was just buzzed. Really? Just buzzed? Yeah, I swear. Well, in that case, my arm is fine. Ah, that's better. You're really okay? You're serious, Becky? No, genius. I'm not serious. Ow! My arm, it hurts. Buzzed driving. Maybe we should stop acting like it's no big deal. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Transportation, the Ad Council, and this station. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis. 
P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for flu. The media is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hi, I'm Mark Sherry. I'm Ed Malachowski. And I'm Ace Housethor, and we're some of the hosts for the New Music Alliance Radio Hour, which goes up every Thursday from 6 to 7 p.m. We're going to focus on presenting some of the best original music to come from the Western New England area, both past and present. In addition to myself and Ace and Mark, we have Mark Beauvais, David Sokol, and Betsy Cordes for the ride. And as always, keep keep on rocking. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia, a program with a wide selection of Asian artists. I like to combine genres from rock, pop, hip-hop, Bollywood, and R&B. So please join me every Saturday from 12 to 2 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Okay, we are back. And like I said, we are going to talk about ghosts. Now, I love a good ghost story as much as the next person, but I don't actually believe in the supernatural or life after death. It's not comforting, but it's a truth that I feel is important to own up to. Personally, I think it helps me remember that this is the only life I get, so I have to live it to the fullest. So why do so many people do believe in ghosts? I think that there is a confluence of reasons, including religion, fear of death, enjoyment at being frightened, just enjoyment of things that are exciting, and a host of more scientific explanations, which are really what fascinates me. Now, one of my favorites is the fact that infrasound can cause people to feel like there is a presence in the room and specifically feel people fill people with a sense of dread. And so the classic example of infrasound, infrasound affecting people is the 1998 Coventry University lab quote unquote haunting. So Vic Tandy, who uh, was a professor there at Coventry University, decided to spend the night in the lab uh, that people had said was basically haunted. So while in the lab, Tandy and his colleagues felt anxiety and distress, shivers down their spines, and Tandy even said that he began to see a dark blob at the corner of his eye. And so after some amount of investigating, it turned out that the culprit was a fan, a fan that was creating sound waves at around 19 hertz, the exact frequency which causes the human eyeball to vibrate and to see optical illusions. When we finally switched it off, it was a huge it was as if a huge weight was lifted, Tandy told Chris Arnott for The Guardian. Now, 
That is definitely one of my favorites um, because I think it's just such an interesting uh, idea that a sound that you can't hear, but that your eyes can feel and that your brain gets input about, even though you can't hear it at a conscious level. And so your brain is trying to figure out what the heck is that? And so it just basically makes things up. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's that's a big one. Now, it's a big one, but probably not the reason for a lot of uh, haunting ideas because it is a very specific thing that is probably not as common. But there are definitely other things. A staple of any ghost hunter's kit is an EMF meter. Uh, they're constantly using EMF meters. They're constantly walking around. And uh, the one that I you usually see has sort of like goes from like green to yellow to orange to red uh, as the electromagnetic field gets stronger. And so basically what it's doing is it's detecting changes in electromagnetic frequencies. And it turns out that high EMF readings can potentially cause people to feel like there is a presence near them. So when that EMF meter goes up to red, it might mean not necessarily that a ghost is near, but that someone might be more inclined to see or feel a ghost in that area. Now, one that was more common in the past was carbon monoxide poisoning. Breathing this noxious gas can cause hallucinations and sickness, and of course, eventually also death. Um, and so there are case studies of people who felt like their dwelling was haunted and they were getting sick only to find out that it was a leak in their furnace or some other source of this potentially deadly gas. Now, the next possible reason is actually one that I've personally experienced. Uh, several time, times in my early 20s, I had episodes of sleep paralysis. Where, had I not been more skeptical in nature, I might have actually suspected that I was having a visitation by either a ghost or an alien. You know, a lot of people talk about alien abductions as well. Um, and so it depends on kind of your cultural background again, like we were talking about earlier with how people perceive good and evil. And so what usually happens is that your body is paralyzed during REM sleep. And so usually that works out fine. It lets you dream without you, your body flailing around a bunch. But sometimes your body and your brain don't quite align properly and you end up paralyzed while still somewhat awake. This is often accompanied by hallucinations as people are in a hypnagogic state. That is the state between awake and asleep where you usually are beginning to dream. And so that can be very, very frightening. Like I said, I've experienced it. And at the time, it was terrifying. Um, I had it happen several times. The first time, I think, was the worst. Um, but I also remember the last time it happened, and that was really bad, too. There were a couple in the middle that weren't so bad. I was a little bit more able to control myself and realize this is this is just sleep paralysis, and you're going to be fine. Um, but there were a couple of times that were utterly terrifying. And so I totally understand where people are coming from when they have that kind of an episode. And so the final more scientific reason for why people might believe in ghosts that I'm going to talk about tonight, there's probably plenty of others, is plain old peer pressure or social conditioning. Uh, 
people who have been raised by or are surrounded by those who believe are much more likely to attribute odd occurrences to the supernatural than those who are surrounded by skeptics. And so in one study, people who watched a video of someone supposedly bending a key with their mind were much more likely to be credulous of the trick if there were others in the room who also expressed belief. If they were surrounded by skeptics, they were less likely to believe the trick. However, just one person in the room confidently asserting the validity of the supernatural could cause them still to turn back to belief. So it's, you know, social pressure is very, very strong. Now, by the way, this study uses the Australian sheep goat scale or ASGS, to divide the participants into one of two groups, believers or skeptics. Now, I often say that scientists are bad at naming things, but this is one of the best ones that I have ever come across, uh, the best names for a scientific measure. It refers to the fact that the questionnaire was developed in Australia and that people are divided in e into either sheep, believers, or goats, skeptics a reference to the second coming of Christ, presumably. Uh, it was first coined in 1943 by Gertrude Schmeidler, a professor of psychology at the City University of New York. That concept, not this particular, um, this particular scale, but the concept of sheeps and goats as believers and skeptics. Now, uh, Schmeidler, it should be noted, became a believer, uh, even though she did concede that some of her conjectures could not be scientifically proven or experimentally uh, replicated. And so there are actually two main sheep-goat scales, uh, the Australian and the Icelandic. So the Icelandic features questions about belief in general, extrasensory perception, precognition, and whether subjects tend to read about such topics. The Australian test features a set of questions assessing the endorsement of ESP and life after death. So yes, I, I do think that that's one of my favorite things. Because um, <laughs> again, I do say often that uh, scientists are not very good at naming things. They're, they often name things very obvious things, which, you know, sometimes you feel like, oh, it's such a missed opportunity. Um, you know, there's a little bit better uh, in taxonomy. A lot of people uh, get away with a little more fun there. Um, and, you know, often name things again. Uh, for famous people or with really great um, sort of descriptions. But in a lot of things, scientists are very, very straightforward in their naming conventions. Okay, so speaking of death, um, which we have been doing for a bit, a new study actually suggests that our brains shield us from the idea of our own death, which makes it hard for us to conceive of our own mortality. And so according to study lead author, Yair Dor Ziderman, uh, who was then a doctoral student at the Bar Alan University in Israel, says that on some level, we all know that we're, we're going to die. Um, but when you really try to think about actually dying, we struggle with the idea of ending, of nothing, of complete annihilation, he writes. And so the researchers were trying to reconcile the brain's learning patterns with the universality of death. The brain uses information to hypothesize what will happen in similar situations in the future. 
This helps us to use less brain power overall uh, and thus less energy and to jumpstart our assessment of potentially dangerous situations, which is, of course, an important tool for survival. If you had to reassess everything all the time, by the time you reassessed what was going on, the tiger would be eating you. Um, and so we also know that everyone will die. So the brain should be protecting this. And yet, very few of us ever actually spend time contemplating our death in a cognitively meaningful way. And so, you know, people might have in ideas about death, but it's your brain is still constantly kind of erasing it. And so the new study asked 24 people to allow their brains to be observed as they faced their own death, so to speak. Dor Ziderman and his team looked at a particular signal in the brain that indicates surprise. This signal indicates that new patterns are being learned and predictions being formulated based on those new patterns. So for instance, if you show someone a picture of an orange and then a picture of an apple, the brain will register surprise since it was expecting another orange. In the trial, the volunteers were shown either their own face or that of a stranger paired with either negative words or words related to death, such as grave. Their brain activity was monitored, monitored using magnetoencephalography, which measures magnetic fields created by the electrical activity of brain cells. They found that after learning to associate a particular face with words of death, their brain would register surprise if a new face was shown associated with those same words, a sign that they were learning to connect the concept of death with the previous face and were surprised to find it switched. However, in a second test, the participants were shown an image of themselves associated with death words and then were shown a strange face. This time, the brain did not show surprise. This then suggests that the brain was not learning to associate the person's face with death. Now, again, it seems very possible that this is an evolutionary defense mechanism uh, that we developed after our ancestors uh, began to actually have a theory of mind. Once you can know that you're going to die, you might then stop doing anything even vaguely, um, you know, uh, dangerous, including procreating. And so, yeah, um, eventually we needed to figure out how to deal with that. <laughs> so the brain developed a shield, a way to shield us from the thought of death. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to get a little bit lighter now, um, I promise. And um, so... Technically, also speaking of death, uh, but this is actually a fun story. Uh, so Dominic um, Serznia, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that name because uh, it's Eastern European, a physicist at the Institute of Nuclear Physics in Krakow, Poland, decided to create a model for how long it would take the entire world to be converted to vampires uh, if they began to infect people. He started work on the project after seeing a paper by an international team of scientists who used mathematical models of vampire and human interactions in fiction. And so from the original paper, they say, 
Although mathematical modeling enables us to reject most of the popular scenarios embedded in popular literature and film, it appears that several popular cultural sources outlined the models describing plausible and peaceful vampire and human coexistence. Now, of course, I have to uh, report that one of those was actually the uh, Twilight Saga. Um, <laughs> so at least it has one redeeming quality, perhaps. <laughs> the others mentioned in their um, research that were um, able to sustain potentially a balance between humans and vampires uh, were Charlene Harris's Southern Vampire series and Elizabeth Costava's The Historian. Now, I haven't read either of these, though I have wanted at some point to start that Southern Vampire series because I've seen a lot of them and they look like they're pretty fun. Um, but I haven't read either of them, so I can't recommend or not recommend either of them. Um, I can obviously not recommend The Twilight Saga. <laughs> Um, having, without even having read it. Um, and so uh, sort of the more uh, traditional vampire uh, stories and uh, scenarios from um, Bram Stoker, uh, Stephen King, and Anne Rice, those would all end up with the human race shortly, and then shortly thereafter, the vampire race going extinct, um, and all of those quite quickly. <laughs> um, but getting back to uh, Sersnia, the authors sub subtly suggested the existence of vampires based on real-life data, uh, he told the journal Science Alert. Uh, that drew my attention, and I decided to test it out in a scientific way with the well-known theory predator-prey model based on game theory. All of this was challenging, and because I focused on the calculator in my free time, it took me about a month to finish everything. I'm an absolute sucker, pun intended, for traditional ruthless vampires such as Dracula, but... There have been so many interesting takes on vampires in literature and movies over the past years. And so the results of his work are an online calculator where you can select the type of vampire you want to start with and then adjust several parameters such as the human population, how uh, quickly the population grows, the number of vampires, whether or not they are uh, more aggressive or less aggressive, and the possibility of vampire slayers and whether or not they recruit others to be vampire slayers. There's a lot of variables you can check. But it's actually really hard to find a scenario where humans win out over the long scale. Um, but it's fun to play. I did it uh, I did it earlier today just to test it out. Um, I did actually find a couple of scenarios where humans did uh, continue to seem to have um, the ability to maintain populations against the vampires. So it is possible. Um, and so I um, will post a link on the Facebook page so you can go there and play with it yourself. It's real fun. Um, there is, uh, you know, a bit of flavor text as well as just the sort of, uh, you know, moving things around and showing a graph. Um, and so it is really fun. And so, yeah. 
I had to give meaning to raw numbers to build the atmosphere of a vampire apocalypse, Cernia adds. It combines two things that I find fascinating, science, or, sorry, fiction and science. I love it when we can apply mathematical models to even the most surprising things, and describing a vampire apocalypse using differential equations definitely makes the top of my list. And that sounds pretty amazing to me. All right. So in other not terribly scary news, but fun to talk about, uh, you may have heard about this, uh, but 13 Eagles recently bankrupted a group of uh, scientists. <laughs> so the Eagles were migrating south from Russia through Kazakhstan, uh, where they managed to rack up hundreds of dollars in data roaming charges this past summer. So the birds were equipped with tracking tags designed to send four SMS messages with GPS data every day from their current location. Unfortunately, a few of the birds took routes through remote wilderness in Kazakhstan, uh, where there were no cell towers. And so those messages just built up. Once they arrived in Iran in October, a sudden flurry of built-up messages were sent. The problem, though, is that the rate for such messages from Iran is three times that from Kazakhstan, which basically cleaned out the researchers' budget. But this has a very happy ending. Uh, the scientists from the Russian Raptor Research and Conservation Network were able to crowdfund some support and raised over $1,000, enough to cover the bill and even to put some towards future research. They were actually also solicited by several telephone companies offering free or reduced prices for the Eagles, and of course some good press for themselves, and they ultimately were able to choose the option with the best coverage in remote areas and with a special lower cost plan. This was from one of the Russian companies that offered. So in future, the Eagles will not break the accountants' hearts. Um, so yeah, that is very fun. Um, and I just love the idea of eagles uh, breaking your bank with with cell phone roaming charges. <laughs> it's just such a delightful little story, which, of course, because it has a happy ending um, and, you know, they were able to make everything work out. All right. So I wish that I was going to end with that tonight because that's a fun story. But I do have to end tonight with uh, something that is a perennial topic here, which I really wish it wasn't. I wish that we didn't ever have to talk about this and that people just did it without un, without any kind of argument or uh, just drama. Um, but we're going to talk about vaccination. Uh, and so a new study reminds us once again why being vaccinated, this time especially against the measles, is better than the idea of letting your children contract this disease so as to gain so-called natural immunity. And of course, again, I would remind you that the immunity from the vaccine is no different from natural immunity. Now, measles is an extremely contagious disease. And while the vast majority of people will recover from it, it can cause lifelong disability and death. Currently, in 2019, when we have extremely effective vaccines available, around 110,000 people die 
each year from the disease around the world. And in fact, cases of measles have increased by more than 280% since 2018, according to the World Health Organization. It is shocking and frankly indefensible. And now we see that measles can also wipe out the built-up antibodies to other diseases as well, causing so-called immune amnesia and returning the immune system to a baby-like state. Measles essentially takes away their ability to efficiently protect themselves, says Michael Mina, an epidemiologist at Harvard University and co-author of the new study, which is published this week in the journal Science. A second paper was published in the journal Science Immunology. Using a cohort of 77 unvaccinated children from an Orthodox Protestant community in the Netherlands, the two studies revealed that measles caused long-lasting changes to the immune system, causing it to lose function. It turns out that many of the deaths attributable to measles are almost certainly not the direct result of the pathogen, but of secondary infections that are able to penetrate the immune system that has been weakened by the measles infection. The researchers looked at the blood samples from actually 82 children before and after a measles epidemic hit the country in 2013. Those 77 were the children who contracted the illness. One group studied the children's white blood cells, especially a kind called a B cell. B cells build proteins that grab hold of novel pathogens in the body and pass them to other proteins for destruction. As they continue this work, they maintain the proteins for previous infections to create a faster and more robust response to future infections. However, children infected by measles can lose many B cells that have this type of memory. And while between 40 and 50 days after the measles virus has left the body, the amount of B cells recover, it's not at all clear if they are able to remember what their slain fellows knew. The other team looked at antibodies themselves. Trillions of antibodies can be found in just a microliter of blood, according to Mina, many of which are produced by bone marrow cells called long-lived plasma cells, which are also attacked and killed by the measles virus. Using a tool called VIRSCAN, the researchers were able to create a timeline of antibodies in the children's bloodstream. They found that after the measles had done its work, between 11 and 72% of the antibody diversity was lost. This level of loss seemed to be tied to the severity of infection. Vaccinated children, along with those who managed not to catch the disease, retained 90% of their antibodies over the same time period. And while healthy children do regain their immunity, but only through re-exposure to pathogens, children in the science study quickly regained antibodies to fight off staph infections, influenza, and adenoviruses, which are those that cause sore throats and pneumonia. However, these children either lived together or in close proximity to one another, allowing the pathogens to be easily transmitted among them. What we were actually witnessing was re-education of their immune systems, Mina said. And although the relatively healthy Dutch children withstood these secondary infections, malnourished or immunocompromised children might not fare so well after measles. He added, getting bombarded by many infections at once could be particularly devastating. 
Now, further research will be needed to see if donor antibodies might help patients more quickly regain their immune protection and why some children lost more of their immunity than others. And we will also need to look at how these changes will affect survivors over the long term. But the overall uh, obvious upswing of this is that people should get vaccinated and should vaccinate their children. All right, that is all the time I have for tonight. Please uh, do stay tuned for other shows on this station. Have a good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.